ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اما بعد my dear brothers and sisters assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh I will start off by apologizing for two things. Number one, uh, for last week having to cancel the halaqa due to the weather. Uh, for those of you in the northeast, the hail was just uh, horrendous. And even my street got flooded, subhanAllah. So cars were uh, coming in and out with uh, extreme difficulty. And then for today, starting late, uh, the plan was to start on time, but we were trying different technological things. And because of that, we are starting a bit late. So I do apologize for that. So what you see in front of you on the screen, uh, is an article that was published on June 20th. This is a, a blog that I follow by a uh, Muslim author. His name is Omar Osman. He's out of Dallas, Texas. And the blog is actually called Ibn Abi Omar. And the article is called The Leadership Training Program of the Prophets. And it speaks about why is it that every prophet of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was a shepherd? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose every prophet to be a shepherd? And even the Prophet ﷺ himself, as he reported in Sahih al-Bukhari, he says that I was a shepherd uh, during the early years of my life and I earned a modest wage from it. And then the second hadith that he highlights over here is that oftentimes not everyone views themselves as a leader. Not everyone views themselves as a leader. And leadership is not just a title where an individual is in an organization or has a formal capacity but even in the way that you conduct yourselves, there are leadership characteristics that are needed. And that is why the Prophet wasallam says, every one of you is a shepherd and everyone is responsible for his flock. The leader of a people is, his, is its guardian and is responsible for his subjects. And the hadith goes on. So, even over here, the Prophet wasallam gives the example and a similitude of you are the guardian of your flock. You are the shepherd of your flock. What I want to do as a group exercise over here to start off tonight's uh, event is why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala choose the prophets to be shepherds? What specific lessons were the prophets meant to learn about leading people by being shepherds? So think about that for a second and raise your hand when you have an answer, inshallah. And let's see if we can get like seven of them. Go ahead. Yeah. Excellent. So the shepherd is the guardian of the flock and needs to protect their flock just like you would protect uh, the people that you're in charge of as well. Jazakallah khair. That's amazing. Go ahead. Maybe so like you're, uh, maybe so you start living Position, yeah, that's great. And I'm going to reframe this into two ways. So the brother's comment was that uh, it instills humility inside of you because it's not a very lofty position to say I'm the guardian of the sheep. But also that if you think about leading people, leading people can be a very daunting task, right? 
So you start off by leading sheep. They can't speak back to you. They can't shout at you. They can't argue with you. You know, the worst thing that they can do is they can run away, right? And that's the worst thing that can happen with these sheep. So it's a starting point for you that will instill humility inside of you. So we have two great points over here from the sisters. Go ahead. Yeah. Of course, it instills a high level of patience. You need the utmost amount of patience because I'll show you in a little bit. Sheep are not very intelligent at all. Sheep are not very intelligent at all. In fact, I think this is a good uh, point to actually just show you the video because I'm really excited to show it to you because I must have seen this probably like a hundred times and I still laugh at it every time I see it. So can you guys see it on the screen? And is it possible to dim the lights? Can we get someone to, to dim the lights? Jazakum Allah khairan, thank you so much. So I'll just wait till we dim the lights. And then uh, it's just a short one minute video. So this is to show you, like if you get frustrated dealing with people, wait till you have to deal with sheep. Okay, Jazakum Allah khairan. <laughs> oh man. That's it. Jazakumullah khair. We can turn the lights back on. So, um, their sheep aren't very intelligent, as you can see, subhanAllah. And I think, particularly when dealing with people, you know, we always want them to be smart, we want them to avoid the pitfalls. But if you can be patient with the sheep, you'll learn to be patient with the people as well. Jazakumullah khair. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, and you, um, actually the sister side is still off. The, sister, the lights from the sister side are still off. I'm not sure if someone can turn those back on as well. Um, any other comments from the sisters? Another feedback? Why were the prophets shepherds? And what do we learn? Go ahead, yeah. Excellent. So not all, you won't always have uh, a common language with the people and you still need to be able to lead them. So what did you do in those situations and circumstances? So in dealing uh, with sheep where you don't have that common language, then you learn to communicate and you learn to lead even though you don't have a common language. Go ahead. Okay, so your first point, what I'm saying, what I'm understanding is that you're going to be in isolation a lot. You're going to be doing this by yourself, so you have to learn to be alone. Okay, excellent. And then your second point was about the different personalities of the sheep. Is that actually true? Do sheep have different personalities? <laughs> Got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see that. I can see that. We'll do one more from the sisters. Anyone from the sisters? a different characteristic that the prophets learned from the sheep. Anyone? Go ahead, yeah.
So caring beyond just for yourself and, you know, preferring the, the needs of the sheep over your own. And I think that's a very, very important point. So these are all great points. And I think, you know, the, it's subhanAllah, in a simple hadith like this, that all the prophets were, were shepherds, you can extract so many lessons. And this is part of that tadabbur exercise that we speak about quite frequently, where you take a text, either a hadith or a verse of the Qur'an, and you extract as many benefits and lessons from it as possible. Now we move on to the second hadith that I quoted for you, where the Prophet ﷺ says, each and every one of you is a shepherd, and each and every one of you is responsible for your flock. So what does that look like on a practical level? On a practical level, in your own household, you will have tiered leadership. So you will have an individual that will look after the, the kids, an individual that will look after the maintenance of the house, an individual that's responsible for bringing in income, and you can, this is going to all be shared, but there will be primary roles and secondary roles within the households as well. So when we think about leadership, it's not just about leading an organization, leading a corporation, leading a business, but it's even in your day-to-day -day interactions with people, all of these characteristics need to be understood. So at the head of them, empathy. Where when you're dealing with sheep, you have to learn to empathize with what their needs are, not what you want to do and what your needs are at that given point. But they need to go out and graze. They need to go out and eat. They need to have their wool clipped. Like all of that needs to happen and you have to be concerned about them. So this teaches us the importance of having empathy with people and being merciful and compassionate towards the needs that they have. Part of being a shepherd is also realizing that sometimes you're going to be leading from the front where the sheep will follow you. And at other times, you have to be in the back and just allow them to move forward themselves and allow them to move forward themselves. And if they step out of line, you bring them back into the flock. You bring them back into the flock. Number three is the importance of looking out for them. And this is something that can't be highlighted enough. The Prophet ﷺ, he tells us in a separate hadith that the, the wolf will eat from the stray sheep. Meaning the sheep that leaves the flock, that is the sheep that the, the, the wolf will uh, devour. In the dhi'ba, ta'kulu min al-qasiyah, right? So similarly over here, looking at your own households, looking at different positions that you may have, what are we doing actively to protect our flocks and to protect our people? So whether it is for the sheep, you're building a fence and that's what they stay within, or if an animal is coming from outside, you literally have to fight it off with your staff or whatever else you have to protect the sheep, that is what is being done with the shepherd. But for ourselves, there are spiritual ailments that you have to protect your flocks from. Things that you allow into your household. What are they allowed to view? What are they allowed to listen to? Right? What are the, the things that you bring home in terms of your characteristics that they look up to and they follow? Right? So these are all the things that you have to do. So I wanted to do this as an introductory exercise to lead us into this topic of uh, leadership lessons from the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I believe it is this one. There we go. Make it full screen. And here we'll actually jump into the book. So the book that we're using is called Leadership Lessons from the Life of Rasulullah by Mirza Yawar Beg. And Mirza Yawar Beg, he is an international speaker from India. Uh, from what I understand, he spent his life doing leadership training and managerial training in different capacities, mainly within uh, businesses. Like it, it mentions in the back that some of his clients included Microsoft, Motorola, General Electric, Unilever, Siemens, Accenture, and so on and so forth. But eventually, as he grew older, he became more practicing, and he learned about the seerah of the Prophet 
And when you look at what's happened with the Ummah of Muhammad sallallahu clearly there was this massive expansion in a short period of time. And this project known as Islam is still alive till today in its purest form. So he attempted to extract those lessons uh, in this book. I'll briefly give you an overview of this book where it's, it's written in an interesting fashion where approximately 140 pages in, you're still into the introduction about the book. Like 140 pages in or so, you're still in the introduction to the book. And then at the end of the introduction, he talks about if you were to break this book down, there are 11 principles and characteristics that every leader must have. There are 11 principles and characteristics that every leader must have. And then he takes those and breaks them down into smaller chapters and then uses examples from the seerah, uses examples from the seerah for those particular lessons. The good thing about this is that if you have no experience in leadership and its terminology, and you have no experience in the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, this is a great introduction to, that, to both of those things. The thing that works against you is that if you have some experience with the seerah or with leadership terminology, you're going to find this very, very simplistic. So I would say this is a very introductory level book. Other things that, you know, sort of turned me off about the book were there were a lot of spelling mistakes uh, and not things that, you know, are, are minor. Like when he's talking about Dihya al-Kalbi, radiallahu anhu, the name is actually misspelled, Yahya al-Kalbi. So if someone hasn't studied the seerah, they've actually completely using a different name than the name of the Sahabi, radiallahu anhu. And then other mistakes like that as well. There's factual uh, uh, inaccuracies about the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu So it's something that I would encourage that if you're going to use this as a resource for seerah, you supplement it with something else. Like the seerah of Sheikh Yasir Qadi, like the seerah of Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda, or even some of the other seerah books that are out there, like When the Moon Split, uh, and so on and so forth. Other than that, I think this is a great book to start off with. I also brought uh, two other books that attempt to do a similar task, which is to look at leadership from a seerah lens, where you look at the lens of the seerah, the seerah of the Prophet and then you extract leadership lessons from them. This is actually written by a non-Muslim. His name is John Adair, and it's called The Leadership of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. John Adair has actually written you know, a, a, a plethora of books on leadership, and then what he does over here is he takes some ahadith and takes those ahadith as chapter headings of which can be used as leadership lessons. And then the last book that I have with me is called Secrets of Leadership and Influence. And this book was actually written in Arabic and translated to English. It's by Suleiman ibn Awad Qayman. And it basically looks at the secrets of leadership and influence from the lens of the seerah. I haven't read this book. Someone gave this to me as a gift, but it's supposed to be pretty good as well. So these are the different books that are out there that attempt to extract leadership lessons from the seerah of the Prophet So for the course of our discussion this week and next week, we're going to just skip the introduction of the book and we're going to jump straight into the 11 criterion or characteristics that um, leaders are meant to have and can learn from, from the seerah of the Prophet So the first of them is complete certainty. And when we speak about complete certainty, this is about complete certainty in your message and in your role. Complete certainty in your message and in your role. So now that we understand the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu that all of you are shepherds and all of you shall be questioned about your flocks, 
what we want to start doing is thinking about the roles and capacities that we fulfill as leaders. So that's the first thing that we want to do. Now, once you've embraced that, okay, I am a leader, you have to understand what is your project? What are you leading? Who are the people that you're leading? What are the things that you need to keep in mind in consideration? So coming back to the Prophet wasallam, the project was Islam. The people are the Ummah. And the goal over here is to increase the number of Muslims and to expand Islam. That was the goal and aim of the Prophet wasallam. So if you're looking at um, the message over here that you're meant to have certainty in, you can say it is Tawheed, it is monotheism. Get more specific, it is Islam. You want to define Islam. You can define Islam as submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Tawheed while fulfilling the requirements of its pillars and to be free from disbelief and its people. That is generally how the scholars will define Islam. So now when you think of yourself, okay, what is your you know, one-line tagline? That if you were that, uh, in an elevator and you're trying to give a pitch as to who you are as a leader in that capacity, who are you trying to lead and what is the message that you're trying to do? So you can break it down in your head. Okay, I'm trying to lead my family upon the teachings of Islam with mercy, compassion, and justice. So that can be your one-line tagline. And that is what you have to have in complete certainty in. That this is my role, this is what I'm going to be serving as, and this is what my function is at this given time. And this also shows us that you can wear different leadership hats and have different taglines based upon where you are. So for example, at work, you have a different role. You're a manager of customer service. So your role at that time is to provide the best service possible with the fewest amount of errors and to have you know, the utmost amount of efficiency and output. So that can be for customer service. So you can have different taglines, but the goal we want to look at is you have to actively think about those things. It's not something that will passively come to you. If you're not learning about it, if you're not building it, if you're not structuring it, then you need to start doing that actively now. Number two, the second thing that you need to have the utmost certainty in, and for the Prophet ﷺ, was the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make him victorious. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make him victorious. So how do you translate that into our own lives? If you look at the ahadith that talk about the dua, and I, I touched about this in, in today's khutbah, the Prophet ﷺ tells the companions, وَادْعُوا اللَّهَ وَأَنْتُمْ مُقِنُونَ بِالْإِجَابَةِ that call upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala while you are certain of a response. While you are certain of a response. And he continues on to say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will answer all of your du'as in one of three ways. Either you get what you want when you want it, or it's delayed till a time that is better for you, or in fact what you're asking for is not good for you, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala averts an equal amount of evil. So when it comes to our goals and our missions and our leadership, that same level of certainty is required. What does that certainty look like? That if I am sincere, and I follow the example of the Prophet ﷺ, and I try my best, everything that happens to me will be in my best interests. Everything that happens to me will be in my best interests, in this life and the next. And you see this at the time of the Prophet ﷺ as well, where at the onset, on the appearance, it looks like a loss, but in the greater scheme of things, it is actually a victory 
from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The clearest example is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Number three, what you're required to have certainty in is who you are as an individual. Who you are as an individual. What's really fascinating is that if you know anyone that ever runs in politics, before they even get appointed to this political position, they have firms that will come and do background research on this individual and try to dig up as much dirt as possible. Anything that they may have done all the way from like high school till like the most recent times. From their interactions with people to financial transactions to whatever it may be. And up until they're like, okay, we can tolerate the risk that this individual may bring, they're not going to allow that person to, to run as a, a candidate, generally speaking, generally speaking. Now, for the Prophet if you look at the early onset of his life, that was very, very apparent as well. We have the example of him placing the black rock in the corner of the, of the, the Kaaba, and him being called uh, a sadiq al-ameen, the truthful and the trustworthy one. The example of him as a young teenager, when he wants to go into Mecca and celebrate with the people, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes him to fall asleep and he's unable to partake in those actions. So the integrity of the Prophet was still intact. So for our purposes is what type of certainty will people have in you? What type of certainty will people have in you? That when they look at you, do they look at you as a morally upright, courageous, brave person? Or do they not believe in your character? Or, or perhaps maybe even you're unknown. So if you're unknown, you have to prove your character to them in order for people to follow you and to be certain about you. To be certain about you. So these are all things to, to keep in mind. That these are the different types of certainties that are required before a person can achieve the highest levels of leadership before you can achieve the highest levels of leadership. Number two, not willing to compromise on your tagline, on your mission. So for the Prophet ﷺ, you see clear examples where the Prophet ﷺ is offered kingship and he refuses. He's offered wealth and he refuses. And multiple times he's offered different things that you may think the Prophet ﷺ wants and needs at that time, yet he refuses because he's not willing to compromise on his core message, on his core message. That the core message of the Prophet ﷺ is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. I don't know why it seems like the volume keeps going up. <laughs> it's like naturally going up, subhanAllah. Where the core message of Tawheed of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot be compromised on, right? So no matter what happened, the Prophet ﷺ would not be willing to compromise on that. Similarly, in our roles of leadership, we want to look at what are the things that we will not compromise on whatsoever. So the easiest example that I can think of is leadership in the capacity of trying to get married. So an individual that's trying to get married, oftentimes we don't think about the type of person that we want to marry, right? We'll think about physical characteristics. We'll think about, you know, what type of job, what type of salary that they may have. And then those are the characteristics that we look for. But the Prophet ﷺ, he tells us to always prefer the deen and good character. Should always prefer the deen and the good character. So one of the things that we shouldn't be willing to compromise on is that if a person does not pray and is not willing to pray in that sort of situation, that's a red flag over there. They can have a million dollars, the best job, come from the best possible family, but if they have no regard for the salah, 
there's no compromising on that issue right over there, right? And you have to, uh, you know, move on to something else. Look at, again, leadership in your household, that yes, you lead by mercy, you lead by compassion, you lead by justice, but if someone wants permission to do something haram, you can't say, you know what, just because your friends are trying and because they're young, you're allowed to make dumb, stupid mistakes, you can go ahead and try it. No, that's not the way it works. There are certain things that you will not compromise on no matter what happens. And in those situations, you will be deemed as the enemy. You will be deemed as an evil and wicked person. And that is what happened to the Prophet ﷺ. What did they say about him? That he was breaking up families. That as people were accepting Islam and changing their way of life, they're breaking up families. They're abandoning the way of their forefathers. They're abandoning tradition. They're abandoning their core identities. And you will be deemed as the villain. And in those sort of situations, you go back to point number one, which is your certainty. Because if that certainty is not there, you will not succeed in your mission. You will not be able to deal with the criticism that will come your way when you are not allowed to compromise, when you are not allowed to compromise. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He actually reminds the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam time and time again, That all they want from you is for you to compromise Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so that they will compromise as well. And this is where integrity comes from. Integrity comes from when you know what you stand for and you're not willing to sacrifice it or give it up. You're not willing to sacrifice it or give it up. And these are the core principles of whatever you are standing up for. Now, while they're not willing to compromise your core tenets and your core principles, are there things that you can compromise? And the answer to that is 100% yes. In fact, when you realize that you're dealing with people, there always has to be some level of compromise. What that compromise looks like is going to be in one of two things. Number one, is in how you conduct yourself and the messages that you deliver to them. So as they always say, we don't change the words, we change the way we deliver those words. Right? A person can deliver the same words with a smile and they'll be received one way. And you can deliver the exact same words, raising your voice, talking like this, and you know, it receives a, a completely different reception. So your core message, your core principles, you stick to who you are, but you can change the, the, the delivery of it based upon that time, circumstance, and situation. And this is something that you should allow flexibility for. And you should develop a sense of firasa, a sense of onsite. Okay, this is what people need now. They need someone that's speaking slowly and easygoing because they're already riled up and worked up and that's not what the situation calls for. Or at other times, you need people to get excited. You need people to get uh, engaged. So you pick up the pace and you raise your voice a little bit and you'll notice that it changes the setting as well. And then the second thing that you should be willing to compromise on is when you're navigating true harms. When you're navigating true harms. And for me, this is something beautiful, that if you look at the deen of Islam, as soon as a true harm comes into place, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends uh, a facilitation. He makes things easy at that time. So we have the example of the Prophet وسلم, where three men were out on a journey and then one of them he became defiled in a state where he had to make uh, ghusl, he had to make, take a shower at that time. So the two companions that were with him saw that this man was injured 
but they forced him to make ghusl while they're out and it is extremely cold and he ended up getting uh, extremely sick and he ended up dying, right? And at that time, the Prophet wasallam, what did he tell these people? Only if you would have asked, only if you would have asked, meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes ways out in those difficult circumstances and situations. So as soon as true harm comes into place, you can't be rigid at that time. But you have to recognize the true harm and come up with a solution that is appropriate and adequate in response to that. And that solution cannot be a concession that is greater than needed, nor can it be so little that it doesn't accommodate to the situation. What does that look like on a practical level? So you look at the example of Salah again. People are traveling, and during travel, you can't always choose where you stop, right? If you're traveling on public transportation, particularly, you're taking a bus, you're taking a train, you're taking a plane, you can't tell the, the driver, hey, can we stop right now so that we can pull over and pray? It doesn't work like that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He didn't cancel the prayer for travelers. He didn't say, you know what, while you're traveling, you don't have to pray. But what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did allow is that you are allowed to combine your prayers. You are allowed to combine your prayers. If you need to sit down and pray in that particular circumstance and situation, you are allowed to sit down and pray. You are allowed to, to, to combine your prayers between Dhuhr and Asr and Maghrib and Isha. So this is what we're talking about, where the response to the true harm that is taking place cannot be greater than is needed, like you absolutely cancel the prayer for that duration, nor can it be so little that it doesn't make things easier for you, that it doesn't make things easier for you. And the leader needs to recognize that. So once you recognize the true harm that is coming to your people, your response to that true harm needs to be a balance between those two things. So do not compromise, but do change the delivery, do change your attitude, do change your mentality as the situation arises. And as soon as there is true harm, then based upon that true harm, you come up with a response that is appropriate. Number three, the Prophet ﷺ used to put himself on the line. Bismillah. And this means leading by example. So if you look at the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, the Prophet ﷺ was not a general of an army where he used to view from the battlefield and say, you go do this and you go do that. But the Prophet ﷺ himself was always engaged, was always engaged in those battles. In fact, he was from the most ferocious and brave of fighters in these battles. So he's putting himself on the line. And if you're not willing to lead by example and do things on your own at first, then your people will not follow you. Your people will not follow you. You have to be willing to risk yourself and risk who you are. So now when you look at this at a practical example, you can't tell your children to do something, and I keep coming back to parenting because I noticed that there's quite a few parents and quite a few children here, so that's what we're addressing. But you can apply this to all aspects of your life, that you can't tell your children to pray, but they, but they don't see you praying. You can't tell your children to pray, but you're not willing to lead them in prayer, right? So you have to be willing to get engaged yourself. Anything that you want your flock to do, you yourself have to do it. And I think that is what made the Prophet ﷺ almost an idealistic example. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made him so perfect from that sense, is that there's nothing that he would command the people to do, except that he himself was already doing it. 
And there's nothing that he, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, would prohibit the people from doing, except that he naturally stayed away from those things as well. Whereas for us, it's like a, a learning process as we're doing it. We learn more, we try to practice it, we share it with people, we learn something's haram, we tell others to stay away from it, and we try our best to stay away from it as well. So that was something that the Prophet ﷺ naturally had. So being willing to put yourself on the line and leading by example. Now, let's do another small group activity. Let's try to think of three benefits that we can get when we lead people by example as opposed to telling them what to do. What are three, thing, three positive things that happen when we lead by example as opposed to telling people what to do? If you have an answer, just raise your hand inshallah. Go ahead. Excellent. Jazakallah khair. That's great. So the task at hand, if you're leading by example and doing it first, you know what's required to get it done. So if there's a, a difficulty that is involved, you'll be more compassionate. If it's very easy, then you can push people a bit harder in that task because you've experienced it first. Excellent. Go ahead. Excellent. Authenticity. So they won't consider you a hypocrite or a coward because you're being authentic. So whatever you're telling them to do, you're doing it yourself. Anything from the sisters? What do we learn by leading by example? Go ahead. Yeah. It shows the people that it can be done. Is that what you said? Excellent. So it shows the people that it's possible for the task to be achieved. These are all great answers. What we also want to look at is when you look at what are the you know, differences between a leader and a manager, right? Often what they say is that the manager will create a degree of separation between him and the people that he's managing. Whereas the leader, and like manager over here is used as like a pejorative or like a derogatory term in this comparison. Whereas the true leader he shows the people that he is one of them, that anything that you're willing to do, I'm willing to do as well. And it builds a sense of camaraderie. It brings a sense of camaraderie with the people. So people, when they think of leaders, they often think that we have to look up to our leaders and that leaders need to create a separation between themselves and the people. But the unique characteristic about the Prophet ﷺ is that he was a leader from within the people. He was a leader from amongst the people. He dressed just like they dressed. They could not tell that outsiders came. They couldn't tell who the Prophet ﷺ was because he didn't dress differently. He spoke just like they spoke. He ate just like he, he ate, uh, they ate. So it built that sense of camaraderie with the people. It built that sense of brotherhood and sisterhood with the community. Number two, oftentimes we find that leaders are not accessible, right? Think about the companies that you work for. How easily can you access the CEO of your company? How easy can you access the VPs of your company? Yes, with technology, you can send them an email, but interaction with them, where does that take place? So making yourself accessible to the people by doing the tasks with them is another sense of um, building affinity towards you. That when you make yourself accessible to the people and the people that you're leading, they will respect you more and they'll love you more. And this is something very unique that 
you know, the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, they had this statement that they used to make that, oh, uh, oh Allah's Messenger, may my parents be sacrificed for you. Or may I be sacrificed for you, O Messenger of Allah. This willingness to sacrifice themselves for the Prophet where did that loyalty and genuine care come from? It came from the fact that they knew the Prophet would be willing to do the exact same thing for them. That in any circumstance or situation, whatever the Prophet required from the companions, he would be willing to do the exact same thing for the companions himself. And this shows that being a part of the people develops that loyalty and develops that trust. So these are all reasons why the leader needs to be leading by example with the people themselves. Not in isolation, not separately, but you need to be doing it with the people as well because that is where the love, loyalty, respect, trust, and authenticity will come from. I also like the answer in terms of you know that it can be done, but you also know the level of difficulty that is required in getting the task done. Because oftentimes, you know, your manager will come and say, go and get this task done in like 10 minutes. But you're like, dude, it takes like an hour just to like do it. How can I get it done? So you have this fictional understanding of what the task is and what the expectations are. But once you've done it yourself, then at that point you have realistic expectations from the people. You have realistic expectations from the people. And the last thing that I'll mention over here with regards to this point is that the beauty of leading by example is that you're showing people that it's okay to fail from time to time. You're showing people that it's okay to fail from time to time within public perception. Uh, perception. So you're humanizing yourself. So when you look at the Prophet ﷺ, you will see these glimpses of humanity that made the Prophet ﷺ more beloved. Yes, from time to time, it's not ideal, but it shows that the Prophet ﷺ was human and becomes more relatable at that time. So when you look at the example of uh, the date farmers, the Prophet ﷺ told them, this is how you should farm your dates. The following year when the harvest comes, they come back and say, Ya Rasulullah, we tried this and you know, our, our date farms didn't improve. In fact, uh, the, the, the harvest went down. What did the Prophet ﷺ say at that time? Antum adra bidunyakum. That I tried to help you, I didn't succeed. My specialization is the deen. So we've tried it, now seek the, out the experts that are there to, in this field and seek them out and ask them what they think. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ leads by example and shows that it's okay to fail. Throughout the whole entire seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, you will be hard pushed to find an incident where the Sahaba radiallahu anhum don't listen to the Prophet ﷺ. They don't obey the command of the Prophet ﷺ. But you see that uh, after the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, when they're told to go and slaughter the animals and to get out of their ihrams at that time, no one openly rebelled and said, I'm not going to listen to the Prophet ﷺ. But they're hesitant to respond because they feel defeated at this time. That how did we just compromise so much in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah? How does the Prophet ﷺ expect us to follow him in this? And what does Umm Salama tell him? That go and slaughter the animal, shave your head, come out of the ihram, and the people will follow you in this. And this shows the, again the humanity of the Prophet ﷺ, that you will have situations and circumstances where the people that are following you and that you are leading, they're not going to listen to you. 
And at that time, what they want to see is you getting engaged and you leading and you doing what you have to do. And then they will follow you again. And then they will follow you again. And this is such a beautiful example because oftentimes the leader and the people that they're leading, they're not going to see eye to eye. And at the end of the day, you can disagree and disagree respectfully and provide constructive feedback and criticism. But if the leader makes a decision, you go with it. And as long as you do that, the barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is still there. And that is why this treaty of Hudaybiyah turned into that indeed we have given you this manifest victory and opening. Number four, resilience. And he breaks it down into four, two further facts. Face the facts and absolute faith in success. And absolute faith in success. So with regards to facing the facts, what he's referring to over here is that you can't always have this idealistic, utopian approach to life. Where you know what? Everything's honky-dory. Everything's fine. The seerah of the Prophet ﷺ was not like that. In fact, it's filled with many, many challenges. And you have to understand that, yes, I'm being challenged over here. And I need to be patient and I need to respond to this. And then while you understand the facts, you're still certain that what is happening to you will be in your best interest and will lead you to success and will lead you to success. So the example that he mentions over here is the incident of Ta'if. So the incident of Ta'if, if you look at this uh, scenario very quickly and, and overarching, Abu Talib has passed away. So from within the Quraysh, there's no one to defend the Prophet wasallam, And such a tribalistic culture that if you don't have an elder, you don't have a senior speaking up for you and defending you and arguing for you, the people will just devour you alive. So now that Abu Talib has passed away, the Prophet wasallam, is looking for tribal leadership to support him. The people from within Makkah are not willing to do that. So the Prophet wasallam, travels to Ta'if. He meets with the leaders and the leaders outright reject him. Outright reject him. So much so that they tell their young ones that pelt the Prophet ﷺ out of the city. So the Prophet ﷺ starts bleeding and we know how that story goes. So at that time, the Prophet ﷺ is with Zayd ibn Haratha and with others. You can paint this rosy picture that, you know what? Don't worry about this. This is the way things are meant to be. This is the way it's supposed to go. Or you can be like, you know what? Let's face the facts. That right now, we are alone. We have no support from our external leaders. These people don't want us. And we can continue and move forward. And giving up is not an option. Those are the actual facts on the ground. And then what needs to be accompanied with the facts on the ground is that yes, this is a setback. Yes, this isn't what we want. But at the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised us victory. And we need to keep moving forward. We need to keep moving forward forward. So this is an example of where you face the facts and you face reality, but you still have that absolute faith that success will be yours, that success will be yours. Now in this capacity as a leader, what does success look like? What does success look like? And this is where I think there needs to be a shift in our understanding of success. Success for a leader in an ideal case scenario is getting the job done in the most efficient manner possible while everyone is happy with you. 
That is the ideal case scenario. But what is the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that perhaps you failed at the task this time, but you've learned valuable lessons from this experience that you will implement lessons from next time as well as use this as an opportunity to teach others, as well as use this as an opportunity to teach others. And if you look at the incident of Taif, that is such a beautiful example of you may not want the things that you want in this dunya. The people that are meant to be there for you will betray you. The people that are meant to love you and support you will hate you and repel and, and, and rebel against you. But at the end of the day, you believe in something greater and you move on. And you're patient for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So similarly, Abu Bakr comes now, people are not willing to pay their zakat. Abu Bakr isn't like, you know what, I'm giving up as Khalifa. You guys deal with yourselves. I'm going to go and worship Allah alone. That's not what took place. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu knew it is a setback and we need to continue moving on. And all of the Khulafa thereafter, they learned these valuable lessons from Ta'if. That yes, it is a setback. Let's face the facts. Let's learn the lessons and let's move on. So when we look at failure, failure is not a failure within of itself up and until you don't learn any lessons from it. The second you fail and you don't learn any valuable lessons as to why this happened and how it happened and what can I do better next time, you're still taking something out of it. And that is what needs to be understood, that as long as you're willing to take something away and able to take something away, then you've learned something valuable and hopefully you will not repeat this mistake again. And this is why, fascinating, interestingly enough, do you see another moment in the seerah where the Prophet ﷺ goes to ask for support and he's treated in such a harsh manner again? You don't see that again because the Prophet ﷺ has learned these valuable lessons. And what's also more beautiful over here, and this is coming up later on, and okay, we'll, we'll leave it for then, but just remember this incident of Taif uh, when we get to it. So facing the facts and having absolute faith in success. This is the, the point I wanted to get at. That goals need to come first before personal preferences. When someone hurts you and attacks you, what do you feel like doing? You want to exact revenge. You want to seek revenge. This person harmed me, I want to harm them back. And in this incident of Ta'if, the angels of the mountain came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said, O Messenger of Allah, allow us to flip the mountains on the people of Taif. Yet what did the Prophet ﷺ do at that time? He says that perhaps these people will become believers. So his goal and his objective is always in front of him. And that has to take priority over your own personal feelings at that time. We take example number two. Example number two of Khalid ibn Walid. Khalid ibn Walid in the battle of Uhud, he is the main catalyst as to the defeat of the Muslims. Khalid ibn Walid, he comes up with a strategy. Let's attack from behind the mountains after the archers have left their position. And that is where you can debate, did the Muslims lose? Was it a stalemate? All that can be argued. But clearly, Uhud was not a victory for the Muslims. Uhud within of itself was not a victory for the Muslims. Yet when Khalid ibn Walid comes into, accepts Islam, the Prophet ﷺ gives him the position of, the lead, of leadership even though he has harmed the Muslims in Uhud and caused defeat to a certain degree. We take a third example, the example of Wahshi. Wahshi killed Hamza radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. So much so that the Prophet ﷺ himself 
couldn't look at Wahshi even after he accepted Islam. That he would turn away from Wahshi when Wahshi is in front of him. And Wahshi has made tawbah, he has repented, he has sought forgiveness, and he's done whatever he possibly could to apologize. Yet the Prophet ﷺ still accepted his Islam, but it showed us again the humanity of the Prophet ﷺ, that the pain is real. That someone kills someone that you love, you're going to feel immense amount of pain. You can't just let that go and think everything is okay. Yet at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ knew that as a messenger of Allah, he cannot reject someone's Islam. He cannot say, I don't want you to become Muslim just because of what you've done. Why? Because the goal always comes first. So the leader needs to be able to think about what are the goals and what are the objectives and put those at the forefront and put those at the forefront. So at those moments, you put your personal you know, needs, your personal emotions, your personal vendettas aside, and you do what your flock needs. You do what your flock needs. Now, I want to open up the floor for discussion for you guys. For those of you that are willing, maybe we can get one brother or one sister, that can you think of examples either in history, in your own lives, something that's happened in your life, where you saw a leader, and this could be yourself as well, where you put aside your personal feelings that were very, very strong, but for the greater good, you let those you know, grudges, feelings, emotions go so that the greater goal could be achieved. You can think of an example from history, from a book, from your own life, but I want to hear from, uh, from you guys, inshallah. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I literally thought, I said, no, I would measure this individual based on their I would cut them because of my own personal you know, feelings and emotions. And, and you know what? I promise she was so shocked because she was expecting me to be like, yeah, I or, or even scold them. So that was, that was a really different, difficult time that kind of stopped me in my tracks to be like, oh my God, Muslim. You know, and you know, Allah sees everything and you measure things based on their, like I said, as the goal. No, that's a, a great story and a great example. Jazakallah um, khair for sharing that. Thank you so much. You know, two things that, that came to mind, subhanAllah, and uh, I'd like to hear from the sisters as well. But uh, how many of you have your cell phone plans with Rogers or Fido? Raise your hand, Rogers, Fido. Oh, not that many. I'm surprised. I would have thought there were more. But anyways, as you know, Rogers and Fido had this massive outage um, a couple of weeks back. And at that time, like imagine you're the other major telecommunications leaders uh, in, in, in Canada. You can use this as an opportunity for several things. You can use this as an opportunity. Hey, you know, that carrier is terrible. Switch to us instead. 
or you have the opportunity, you know what, let's lend a hand and lend them our network if it was theoretically possible. I don't know the science and technology behind it, but hypothetically, let's just say it is, you know what, you can use our network for the time being so that you can take care of your customers and that you know, can possibly achieve the same goal except in, in two different fashions. So when we think about the goals of an organization, like telecommunications, you want to get as many customers as possible. And one of the ways is like mocking and parody and you know, taking advantage of someone's weakness and downfall. But the other way is showing your strength and your ability to help out and to accommodate. And perhaps you know, people have a better image and, and perception of you. That's one example. Um, a second example that I was thinking of is that when you look at child psychology, one of the things that they always speak about is the importance of changing the way that you discipline your children. So naturally, in certain cultures, child does something bad, raise your voice, strike them, send them to their room. These are like the things that you rotate between in terms of, of disciplining them. What does that do to the mindset of the child? Creates a sense of lack of confidence, makes them you know, not willing to, to, to speak up and, and be open all the time. Um, perhaps they'll start lying to you. They're no longer afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but they're more afraid of you. These are all the negative consequences that happen. Whereas at that time, if you're able to put your own ego aside and say, look, I'm upset at what this child has done and I'm hurt by what this child has done, but I also need to educate this child rather than reprimand this child, why don't I control myself right now and tell the child, like, look, what you did right now wasn't good. Please don't do it again. This is how you should be doing it. If you don't know how to do it, come and ask me and I'll help you. And in the long run, yes, you have to really subdue your ego and subdue your feelings, but the child develops a much more healthier relationship with you and still has intact that, you know what, I shouldn't be afraid of my parents as much as I should be afraid of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that, those are things that were coming to mind as uh, Bilal was speaking. Do you have any examples from the sisters? Either in something you've read, something that you've seen, something that's happened in current events, where someone has put the needs of the people above what they might presume that is best for them? Anything? Yeah, go ahead. Bismillah. Okay, explain. Tell us. Excellent. And what was the greater goal that Yusuf a.s. Was, was trying to achieve? Why did Yusuf a.s. do that? Of course, the great answers. So Yusuf a.s. This is a great example from the Quran itself that Yusuf a.s. is in a position of power now. He has the ability to exact revenge upon his brothers, but he chooses not to do so. He puts his own personal feelings aside to keep the family together, and he knows that this is what would make his father happy as well. That his father, at the very beginning of the story, he wants all of the brothers to get along. They couldn't do it when there was this huge age disparity and a disparity in numbers. But now that Yusuf has that power and he is older, now that they are on equal footing, he, they're able to fulfill the, the, the dream of their father. They're able to fulfill the dream of their father. 
Now we'll do one last slide, which is living his message. Living the message that you're trying to achieve. So we've spoken earlier on about authenticity. We've spoken earlier on about leading by example. But now what this particular slide is referring to is abiding by the philosophy as a whole, as your way of life. So the Prophet ﷺ becoming the ideal Muslim. That what should a Muslim look like? They should look like the Prophet ﷺ in their traits and characteristics and in their conduct. So that when you have a good leader, when you think of that leader, they are the representative of whatever that entity is. And you can throw names out there. Like when you think of Steve Jobs, you think of Apple. When you think of Bill Gates, you think of Microsoft. So they've embodied the message of their organization and they've become the face of that organization. So just like the Prophet ﷺ became the face of Islam. Now, what is important over here is that was the Prophet ﷺ Islam within of itself? And the answer is no. So here we need to differentiate between the early phases of the seerah and the latter phases of the seerah. And you will also differentiate between when you are a startup of a company and a startup over an organization versus what it's like as your organization grows and becomes more successful. Why we highlight this issue in particular? Because if the main individual in this organization passes away, and they are the organization, then that organization collapses and there will be no succession and there will be no continuation. Whereas if the person is the face at the beginning and eventually the organization and the company, whatever it is, develops its own identity to be separate and even bigger than the individual themselves, then that is when you will see continuation. And this is what we need to understand is that there has to be continuation, there has to be succession. And that is what you start planning for from the get-go. So let's start backwards. That if you look at the Prophet ﷺ, he knew years in advance that he was going to pass away. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, that you're going to die and they too are going to die. So he's given this warning that you need to start preparing for that. So what did the Prophet ﷺ start doing? His close companions, Abu Bakr and Umar, radiallahu anhumah, he would take them everywhere. He would take them everywhere. He would do everything with them. Anything that needed to be done, they were always by his side. And that was the subtle leadership that was taking place. The Prophet wasallam is unable to lead Salah. Who does he appoint in his lifetime? He appoints Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So this was a clear example that Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was meant to lead uh, after the Prophet ﷺ. So that succession is already being prepared. And even though the Prophet ﷺ is alive, he doesn't need to lead the prayers himself because now people know the sanctity of the prayer that it is for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That rather, if they are worshipping Muhammad ﷺ, as soon as he passes away, then Islam is done, the prayer is done. But if they're worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will continue to do so. And that is why if you look at you know, this, the, the statement of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, as he ascends the member, when the Prophet ﷺ passes away, what does he say? مَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ مُحَمَّدًا فَإِنَّ مُحَمَّدٍ قَدْ مَاتٍ وَمَنْ كَانَ يَعْبُدُ اللَّهِ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ حَيٌّ لَا يَمُوت
that whoever used to worship Muhammad know that Muhammad وسلم, has passed away. And whoever worships Allah know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ever living and does not die. So that the individual may have died, but the philosophy is still there, the creed is still there, that core message is still there, and that is what needs to remain. Whereas when you look at the early onset of Islam, they were not able to differentiate between Islam and Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It wasn't Islam, it was the deen of Muhammad. Muhammad and his way. But eventually over time, that changes. And similarly over here, as you are starting off your position of leadership, yes, you will be the face of leadership, you will be the face of the organization, you will always be doing things by yourself. But as you develop your team, as you develop your core, you need to start planning for what happens next. What happens after you demise? What, are, what is this philosophy that you've embodied and imparted your followers with that they can continue with, that they can continue with? And that is what Islam was all about. And that is what Islam was all about. That's what I wanted to share with you in the first half of this slide. Inshallah, we'll pick up uh, at this point, bithnillahi um, ta'ala, next week, inshallah. So next week, we'll be starting up at uh, 8 p.m. again, and we'll continue on to point number 11. We'll be continuing on to point number 11. I wanted up to, uh, to open up the floor for any questions, comments, um, anything you wanted to share at this point. We have a, a few minutes till uh, the Adhan of Maghrib. Go ahead, Bilal. I do have one minute. It ties into number six and number Yes. Right. And then, so I kind of, and I, that's where I kind of put that together in what you were saying earlier about how society is going to be able to go and achieve and all of it. Yeah. So it's, it, it's that inspiration and motivation, and, and it's sustainable, like it lasts. Of course. And you never have to tell them after that, and they spread that message. Right. It's like, you know, taking coffee, and he probably gets up in the walking and does the speech, not the coach. Right. You know, or if you guys are. <laughs> no, I, I think that's great. 
uh, if you'll allow me, I think I'll, I'll add two things to that. That when you look at sustainable action from the Islamic perspective, you know, I think about the prohibition of alcohol and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited alcohol in phases. So phase number one was you had to increase the iman of the people and you basically told them that drink alcohol but not to the degree of intoxication, right? Um, and what you learn over here is there needs to be a concept of I'm committed to something greater. That's number one. Number two is that there needs to be incentives. So Jannah and Jahannam, good deeds and bad deeds, documentation of good deeds, documentation of bad deeds. And then there needs to be the logical reasoning why. And all these things need to be combined in order for actions to be sustainable. So that clearly that desire for drinking alcohol would still be there for someone that's done it in the past. But when you understand that you know what is going to uh, hinder the processing of my mind and my ability to make decisions, and that's what Islam is going to be judging me upon, then believing in a greater cause, having those positive and negative reinforcements um, and incentives, as well as having a logical understanding as to why I need to stay away, that is how the actions became sustainable, right? And I think this ties in perfectly that, you know, there is that concept of leading by example where the Prophet never drank and he spoke about the prohibition of, uh, of alcohol, but he also explained logically um, about alcohol. He says, um, I, I can't remember the beginning of the hadith, but the beginning of the hadith, uh, but the hadith basically says that stay away from alcohol because alcohol is an intoxicant and every intoxicant is haram. Right, so anything that hinders the mind, you now have a logical understanding. And I think this is all so important to understand that as we approach the deen, you need to approach the regulations of the deen from a logical perspective as well. That everything that Allah made halal, He made halal because there's a benefit in it. So what is that benefit that Allah wants me to achieve? Anything that Allah made haram, He made haram because there's a harm in it. What is that harm that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to stay away from? And as you ponder these things and learn these things, they will strengthen your resolve in either doing that action because it's good or strengthen your resolve in abstaining from that action because you recognize the harm. So I think that's a great starting point from what you were saying. Go ahead. Are there ever signs that you're ready to lead? Are there ever signs that you're ready to lead? I'll share what came to the, first, uh, the forefront of my mind. For those of you that have watched uh, the first Transformers movie, um, what does Optimus Prime tell uh, the character? He tells him that fate rarely calls upon the people at a time of their choosing, right? That you're never going to be ready for leadership, but the time will come where you need to step up because no one else is, and that's when you know that you're ready, right? So I would say there's two approaches to this. There's the element of, you know what, we train our future leaders, and eventually we give them roles where they learn those skills and they learn the talents that are needed to fill that role. And this is a, uh, a process that we create and a process that we try to, to, to lead by. But then there's those other instances where no one else is doing it, something has to be done right now, and if you don't do it, like everyone dies. At that point, you just gotta get up and do it, right? So to answer your question, I would say yes and no. There are times where you will be ready, right? Like you, you've been memorizing the Quran your whole entire life. The teacher has been giving you opportunities to lead salah. And you know what? The times come now where you're going to be the full-time person that leads the salahs, right? So you're trained into that process. But then you have other times where you could be just a young kid. You're just starting your hift. The imam doesn't show up for the masjid. 
a person hastened in giving the aqama without the imam moving forward, and everyone's just looking, who's going to stand forward? No one does it, but you know because you're studying Qur'an, you stand up and lead. Perhaps you may not be officially ready, but you're thrown into that position and you, and you lead, right? So I think it, it would depend on that scenario. I hope that helps, inshallah. Go ahead. Wa alaikum Right. Okay. So the question is, uh, in a position of leadership, what are examples that we can think of outside of clear-cut examples of the deen where a leader comes up with a solution or a scenario that is not you know, destructive of the core elements and principles and at the same time is not so easy that you know, you're, 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 nothing is being achieved. So I think of the examples of, again, if we come back to, to parenting as an issue, the child wants to go clubbing, right? All of my friends are, are going clubbing tonight. Why can't I go clubbing, right? This is what everyone's been talking about in school. This is what I want to go do. And you think about the solutions over here. What are the things that you can do? You know, you can be like, how dare you ask me this question? Go to your room. What are the possible outcomes? That one, they don't communicate with you again and they do this privately. Uh, or two, you know, mashallah, they're a righteous child, and you know what? That's what they needed at that time, because they, they just needed to hear that's haram and you need to stay away from it. But if you think of a, a deeper example in this, you're like, okay, what is it that you're finding so appealing about going clubbing? Oh, I want to spend time with my friends. I want to experience X, Y, and Z. Then you're like, okay, can we create a scenario where you still get the opportunity to hang out with your friends and do something fun and stay up late at night? and get that thrill of, of being up late at night, yet you're still within an environment that is conducive to salah, that is conducing to, to having fun in a halal way, and is still enjoyable, right? So depending on the, the activities that your child is into, I'm thinking just purely from a, as a young teenage boy, like, okay, let's invite all of your friends over, order pizza, stay up all night till Fajr, play as many video games as you want, but make sure you pray Isha and Fajr. So it's not, you're not replicating the haram of the, of the club, but you're still creating an environment that you know what, they're having fun, he gets that socialization that he wants about, and he wants something that he can brag about at school, that yeah, we stayed up all night doing X, Y, and Z, right? So you're getting a deep learn, deeper understanding of what you're trying to achieve. So that's like an example from parenting that I would think of, if that makes sense. But go ahead.
excellent. I wish I could uh, articulate your question in, in a simple way, um, but I'll, I'll try to respond in a, from what I've understood. So number one is that as Muslims, we don't seek positions of authority and we don't seek positions of leadership. That has to be understood. This is something that either you know, our leaders appoint us to, to, to do and to replace, or when the opportunity arises and no one else is doing it, then that's when you lead by example and you step up to the plate. So that's the first thing to understand, that it's not something that you want to actively pursue in terms of leadership itself. Number two is that if you differentiate Islamic leadership from traditional leadership, Islamic leadership focuses on the core message, the philosophy, objectives, and goals, and you're a part of the solution. You're not the solution itself. Whereas leadership, particularly in the corporate world, it's about me getting recognition and praise, me getting paid bonuses, me getting a higher salary, and that's what you're trying to achieve. So if I was to summarize point number two, is what will separate worldly leadership from Islamic leadership is sincerity. And you finding a way to tie in the akhirah to it, that I'm doing this for the sake of Allah, for the sake of benefiting the ummah, for the sake of helping the oppressed, and so on and so forth. And particularly like if you look at modern day movements that stand up for minority causes, what ends up happening with their leaders? They end up pocketing a lot of the donations and doing frivolous things with it. We've seen this time and time again, right? So that integrity is a key component of Islamic leadership. And then the, the third and last thing that I would focus on are the morals and ethics, right? A corporate leadership will tell you get the job done by any means necessary. Undercut people, be as unethical as you can as long as you get the job done. But from an Islamic perspective, it's not only do you have to stay within those ethical boundaries, but you also have to speak, seek spiritual means, that you're constantly seeking the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, to get that done. I hope that answers your question in a certain way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. We'll conclude with that. Inshallah, we'll see you next week at 8 p.m. We'll continue from point number 6 to point number 11. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashadu la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. And we will give the adhan and give the qama right after, inshallah.